Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. I really just have one announcement before I um, invite Ian up to the podium. And that's, I just wanted to say that as you can tell, it's summer, people are away, and we're kind of functioning with just a skeleton crew in many forms, in many areas. And so I'd like to encourage you to sign up to help set up, bring communion supplies, refreshments, greet, There are a lot of opportunities. We'd love to have you. And um, in terms of the refreshments, we are an equal opportunity volunteer organization. So men, feel free to do this as well. Right. You can can click on the link in the um, folder and or contact Jordan directly. Okay. Matt, Ian. (laughs) Wishful thinking, right? Uh, Greetings, Liberty Church. Uh, Welcome this morning. Uh, It's my pleasure to lead us the next part of our service and the one after that. Um, Let you in on a secret. I'm as curious as you are what I'm about to say. um, Sometimes things you write at night make a lot more sense at night (laughs) than they do in the morning. With that encouraging introduction, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, my prayer today is to show one true thing, not to stand in the way of your people, but to disappear behind your words. May you grant us understanding together. In the name of your Son, amen. Amen. Today's passage is a long one. I will read it in its entirety, but not preach on it in its entirety. I was very selective. You can turn to page 5. I will read it out loud from Matthew 13. He, Jesus, put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then moving on to Matthew 13, 36 to 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. 
and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I'm going to go against my better judgment this morning and uh, begin with a self-disclosure, one that will almost certainly lower your estimation of me. No humility without humiliation. Um, I don't recall how it began, but it seems I've succeeded in guilting my two eldest daughters to declare their love for me before 8 a.m. every morning. My thought is that uh, the moment they fail or refuse to do this will mark an important transition moment in their life. The game will be up. And they'll realize that their father's special pleading is an obnoxious and pathetic ploy meant to test their love in a way that is foolish and contradictory. And it is, of course, foolish, as well as a bit pathetic. Still, the heart has its reasons. I can even count myself in distinguished company among obnoxious fathers. Some of you will know the basic storyline of Shakespeare's King Lear. If you don't, just nod along like I usually do. In the opening act, Shakespeare introduces us to an aging Lear who has summoned his three daughters to profess their love for him in order then to bestow on them their portion of his kingdom. The two eldest daughters are happy to oblige. Their fulsome speeches, speeches professing their love, please Lear very much, and he quickly secures their futures. Only the third and youngest daughter whom we are told is Lear's favorite, Cordelia, hesitates. And then when she speaks, she does so in a measured, disciplined way. In a line which my students came to treasure this year, Cordelia confesses, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. What Lear heard was something different. His daughter does not love him as much as her sister's. Punishment is harsh and swift. Cordelia is disinherited and banished from the kingdom. Having uprooted the weed, Lear can now proceed to the harvest. It turned out he was mistaken. I think we all could have guessed that. He had no eyes or ears for the truth. Cordelia did have them, and she will suffer for it, even dying an untimely death on behalf of her father. So much for Cordelia in King Lear. Let's carry that tale with us as we meditate on today's passage about the weeds and the wheat. This is one of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven. As with all such parables, its aim is to prepare us to discern and partake in the kingdom, not just to anticipate it as some future event. The kingdom is, of course, a future event what the theologians call an eschatological event or disclosure. But the parable also instructs us on how to live in the kingdom now, which Jesus has announced is already at hand. 
we had to nail down its central question, it would be something like this. How do we participate in the kingdom of heaven when we also participate in this mixed up, tangled world? With apologies to those for whom this world is not confusing, I assume that many of us would like to answer this question or an answer to this question. The answer Jesus gives will be the mission of his life. It is discipleship. To be a disciple is to participate in the kingdom of heaven. The natural question to follow this, then, is what does being a disciple mean and demand? The New Testament sometimes gives us direct answers to this. Follow me. Take up your cross. Worry not. Be perfect. Memorable as these answers are, their meaning is not obvious. Nor do they seem to be especially attractive options, at least on the surface. In truth, they are neither obvious nor obviously attractive. And so for many listeners, they are easy to ignore and dismiss. Oddly enough, it seems Jesus prefers it to be like that. Having taught us already to pray to our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he presents us this kingdom in a, shall we say, less than direct way, through parables. This choice alone tells us something about the nature of the kingdom. It filters into our world like a whisper, an infant's cry. All the fulsome speeches and loving praise of man's kingdoms, the banners and the flags, the parades and the brigades, the pomp and the circumstance, attracting from us subservient awe at the display of its raw and decadent power. That's a kingdom we can take seriously a kingdom we must reckon with. And so we do, because we believe it will take us somewhere, or we fear it will take us down. The kingdom of heaven is not like that kingdom. It does not offer itself in so direct and unmitigated form. It evades our impulses and deprives our consumptive habits. If I might speak in a crude way, if only to get your attention. The kingdom of heaven is not pornographic. The pornographic kingdom is nakedly transparent and compliant. It yields to our gaze as it drains away our life. Participation in that kingdom exacts a high price for a low entry fee. Hollowed out love, hollowed out work and play, our lives put on display in an endless exhibition but the whisper still filters in. The new life of the infant cries, and the scorned and rejected man still utters, my kingdom is not of this world. Like the calm eyes of Cordelia settling firmly onto our face, resistant to our demands, she exposes us in our hearts. In that sense, Jesus' answers, I think, are highly attractive and seductive, at least for those with hearts to see and contend with it. By speaking of a kingdom not of this world, Jesus does not contradict his claim that the kingdom is at hand. In fact, Christians are bound to say two things about the world, that the kingdom is not this world, and that it is also not not this world. The New Testament has two ways of speaking about the world. One is very much in opposition to it, 
One thinks of the epistle of James with its startling claim that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Another is very much invested in it. The most obvious verse being John 3.16, for God so loved the world. By speaking in parables, Jesus presents to us the kingdom as he presents to us himself. Hidden yet manifest, distant yet present, the eternal word made human flesh, resistant and so seductive. As one theologian puts it, the speaker of the parables and the parables spoken are one. Jesus, too, is like a parable for us. He communicates in parables to usher us into a new vision, to see the world with other eyes, and ultimately to see with his eyes, which we gain by seeing him. And like Jesus, to be a disciple is to be taken out of this world, not by being transplanted to some disembodied parallel la-la land, but by re-inhabiting this world with what the Bible calls the mind of Christ, seeing with his eyes, hearing with his ears. So it is that by putting on the mind of Christ, disciples start to do strange things in the world. They will see what others do not. They will hear what others do not. And the world will appear to them as it is in its substance and not as it seems in its appearance. And certainly not as we wish and demand it to be, as King Lear's example warns us. Let's now take a closer look at the parable before us. And I won't get very far. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed. We don't need to be farmers to follow the illustration, but we do need to ponder what it means to be sown, or to be sown seeds, which is what the kingdom is likened to. I take it to mean the following. I already stated that through parables, Jesus invites us to see the world with other eyes. Now I need to qualify that somewhat. The truth is that all of us, in a significant, inescapable sense, see the world through other eyes, through eyes not our own. Let me explain. We are born into families and circumstances not our choosing. We inherit stories we never told about histories we never lived. Our concepts and principles are stitched together from multiple sources. And even our sense of right and wrong has a story behind it. In fact, many stories. While there's truth to the old adage that we will only see what we want to see, the fact is that even our desires are powerfully influenced by realities beyond our wills. A truth which so impressed the likes of St. Augustine, you know I had to get him in there, that it led him to treat the will as an expression of our motile love. My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. To reinsert this back into the parable's preferred metaphor, we are all sown seeds. I do not mean that we are sown seeds in a fatalistic sense, as referring to some inborn predestined nature. I mean it in the way simply that the parable seems to mean it. The recognition of how we grow into experiencing and seeing the world. It's not wrong to grow. It's not wrong to need love. 
A sown seed is simply a life that's been planted and cultivated by a word. Something spoke to us. It labored over us, tended to us, and patiently ushered us into the sun's light and a new beginning. The stark contrast in Jesus' parable between the good seed and the bad seed serve as illustrative endpoints rather than predefined conditions. The disciples had been fishermen before they had become disciples. They didn't spring from the ground fully formed and enlightened. They had to receive a new word that had the effect of a new birth. And just as the Son of Man had labored over them, so he commissions them to labor over others, to make disciples of all nations through testimony to the word. This is, in a basic sense, what it means to follow Jesus. For those today looking for something concrete to give yourself to, there you have it. If Christ has sown in you, so you shall sow in others. None of us is our own. All of us see through myriad eyes that show us the world. Be vigilant. Stay awake. Speak the words of new life. Pray for the harvest. And look with the eyes of Christ, who saw the world beyond the world. But having said all of that, we have not yet said enough. The parable tells us that once the slaves fell asleep, the enemy infiltrated the master's field and sowed seeds among the wheat. Bad seeds. Weeds, sorry. It's not clear whether this is the fault of the slaves for having fallen asleep. If so, the parable would echo Jesus' repeated exhortations to his disciples to be alert and stay awake. The hour is near. In my view, this evil was not something the disciples could stop. Nor are they commanded to make it stop once it happens. The word here is that good and evil are intermingled in this life. And that eradicating it entirely remains an eschatological determination. Having said that, I don't read Jesus here as teaching surrender to the world of evil. As if adopting a live and let live and it will all work out philosophy of life. Instead, his parable implies that part of our struggle is a matter of sight and foresight. We have to discern what is evil and what is not before it's flowering. As Jesus had taught earlier, you shall know them by their fruits. Our knowledge of ancient farming suggests that the weeds described in this parable, a ryegrass called darnel, would very much look like wheat in the early stages of growth. Thank you, Wikipedia. The parable is therefore calling us to patient discernment. This can be a difficult thing in a time of multiplying moral and spiritual enthusiasms, when the urge to do something can overtake the discipline of careful probing. The task of discernment is to wait, be vigilant, test the spirits, examine the fruit, and return again and again to the word that first nourished us. This is certainly one way to fulfill Jesus' command in the parable. Yet another interpretation, less uncertain about the nature of the evil among us, reminds us that following Jesus means to walk a narrow road. Christian discipleship is not formless and contentless. 
It's not infinite understanding and boundless pliability, saying what anyone needs to hear and everyone needs to hear. But it takes form in this world with a concrete set of convictions. As a result, there are times when certain demands must be declined, when certain actions and declarations must be left undone and unspoken. This is the timeless witness of the martyrs to the church. But see, to follow their witness is not to withdraw from the world, nor is it to seek an absolute power to uproot and destroy it. I call back to our minds the quiet courage of Cordelia. Through her eyes, she sees the folly of her misguided father. But through her eyes, she also sees her father, whom she loves with a true heart. Resistance to her father is for the sake of her father. Resistance to the world is for the sake of the world, which Christ loves by contending and suffering under the illusions it produces. In this time between times, the church too must contend with this Christ. And our prayer should be that we be sown by his word and not the word of another, that we may see with his eyes, not with the eyes of another. I say all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.